to explore new ideas, to seek out new thoughts and new opinions, to boldly opine where no millennials have opined before. This is the Next Next Generation Podcast. Make it so. Welcome back to the Next Next Generation Podcast. I'm Catherine. And I'm Charles. Today we're talking about Season 1, Episode 15, 11001001. That's a mouthful. Yes, it is. So, this episode starts with an incredible opening. I was impressed with the spectacle of it. The very slow pan over to see... Starbase 74 orbiting Tarsus 3. That's right. Starbase 74, you get the space station in focus, and then there comes the majestic Enterprise coming in to dock. Have to give them credit for some wonderful practical effects. One shot in particular Mm -hmm. of all the workers on the space station. Through the back windows, you see the starship coming in to dock. The music is the main theme, and we don't get the main theme in the background very often, and so having the actual title theme presented in the strings and the horns getting a broader mestoso version is just wonderful would you like to define mestoso for our audience majestic thank you you're welcome so they're at the starbase for routine maintenance and upgrades everyone's celebratory especially picard he seems really happy This isn't a milestone they mentioned leading up to it, this kind of docking for maintenance after a certain amount of time out, but it seems like they've reached some kind of goal. Absolutely. Definitely in his mind, he's gotten them through to maintenance number one or something safely and well. He's very confident when he states he's expecting a glowing report. Yeah, although really they do get a glowing report. I guess in the end they do, but they definitely still have some trouble with that holodeck. Mm. So he also says the ship has performed past expectations. I'm not sure what that means. (laughs) He passed his expectations? Could be... He's referencing the earlier episode with the Traveler. Oh, yeah. (laughs) And it goes faster than they could even imagine, and the ship held together under immense speed and pressure. Yes, maybe he was referring to that and then how he stopped it. It was magical, pretty much. And they give some reference to the holodeck problems, like you just said. It almost makes me think that the last episode was maybe supposed to be in a different order. I could see that. Definitely had serious problems with the holodeck in The Big Goodbye. But then they went on and used it again. We thought it had problems in Angel 1 because of the disease. It just seems like the holodeck would have been closed for maintenance after The Big Goodbye until they could get it to a port. You could be referencing both episodes as they appear in show order. I could also see an argument made that it should actually be Big Goodbye, this binary episode, and then Angel 1. We've spent so much time thinking about the holodeck and carefully dissecting everything they say about the holodeck that I noticed that. I might just be in the habit now. (laughs) Too holodeck-centric, huh? (laughs) Yeah. Gotcha. That's my favorite part of the show, besides Data. (laughs) Well, Data does take the cake, doesn't he? Yeah. They meet Commander Quinteros. I don't know what his actual position is. I was going to call him first by his position. He's some kind of welcoming committee and overseer of these ships that are docked. Chief maintenance engineer? Yeah, something like that. So he has the Binars. They've heard of the Binars, but they've never met them. That seems to be a running theme. They're really just now reaching out farther into the galaxy. 
becoming aware of these races and kind of know something about them, but not every individual person has encountered them yet. They're still integrating their societies and communicating and having alliances formed. Although the Federation is presumably quite large at this point, they're still adding new species into the number. The binars are pretty simple to understand. They have one basic shtick. The pair we meet first is 1O and 01. Pretty basic. So they form these sexless pairs. All the binars are integrated into their home computer. They're organic, but they've evolved to rely on the machines to live. That's right. A bit of foreshadowing for our own future, I think. Or a potential future. Agreed. They tell you right away that the binary language of computers has influenced the way the binars think. It's interesting because they've evolved forward to maybe have more technological capability and memory, but in some ways they've devolved, like they've given something up to get that because their thinking is not as complex and advanced anymore. They're thinking, I guess like data, like a machine, it's very black and white, on or off, that has some serious drawbacks in their approach to interacting with other species, as we see in this episode. Right. They only think there are two possible options. Data isn't like that. Well, he has a positronic net. So he has a whole network of neurons, like a brain, our brains, firing together and working together. And he's seeing the possibilities and running through many different calculations. Not a binary system, Mm -hmm. but a more complex system of trying to find the most efficient and best out of many possible outcomes. I think these binars are more base, more simple than that. They're almost linked into the genetic code of computers. While the sum total of that can lead to what data does, which is more complex calculations. Oh, they would just be like, each of them is one node or something. Exactly. Okay. But that would kind of imply that as a group, they could have come up with a better solution to their problem. It could be, because they're still organic, that the nodes once detached from the mainframe or not Mm -hmm. directly plugged into that mainframe, as you find out in the episode, their mainframe is shut down. They're working together as a pair of four, not with the sum total of their species power behind them. So you think they sent off these four and then they started making some bad choices? I wouldn't say bad choices. I think it was a circumstantial thing because that star went supernova and they had to shut down the computer as a reaction to it. Right. And then there was delays and a whole bunch of things happened. So I would say, no, I don't think it was necessarily a mistake. I think it might have been a bad sequence of events that they could not foresee. Oh, okay. I was thinking like the collective intelligence, which we assume they have some kind of collective intelligence, right? Decided we need the Federation's help. They can definitely help us. We need to actually send some people. Then unexpected things happened while they were trying to get the help. Exactly. Like, for instance, they were very rushed, remember? The Enterprise was late coming in for repairs, for example. And so they had to do some thinking on their feet and they're no longer equipped to do that. That's what I think. Okay, that's fair. Pretty stereotypical aliens, like from classic sci-fi. How so? They were weird. They were foreign. They didn't seem to have emotions. They were very computer-focused. But they didn't feel too silly. So very Pulp Fiction-y kind of? Yeah, like classic, the golden age of sci-fi. So they're harkening back to that time and that sort of idea of machine and man merging into one. If only they were green. They were like, well, we won't make them green. That'll be too obvious. (laughs) (laughs) 
as much as they were like, oh, of course, they seem like a normal alien we're used to. They felt believable. I like them better than a lot of the aliens we've seen so far, surprisingly. Yeah, I think so too. I like them as a species, mm-hmm. even though they're a bit gimmicky and stereotypical, like you mentioned. I thought that as an idea, they were more interesting than some of the other cultures we've run into. I think part of the reason they were interesting is because we didn't know what they were up to, but then it turned out to be just communication problems, and they had weaknesses and did bad decision-making, and that made them interesting and dynamic. They were more complex because of the lack of communication, so we inferred more or applied more to them. But then it wasn't exactly what we thought. I agree. Then two more Binar show up, like we already mentioned. Riker is suspicious. No. Yeah, we've never seen him worry about anything before, especially new aliens. It's not like he's prejudiced or anything like that. No, he normally loves the new aliens. (laughs) He's a big fan. I don't know what happened. Something in the water on the Starbase just isn't meshing with him very well. He holds up the big sign, welcome to Starship, new alien friends. Number one fan hat. (laughs) And then you find out he lost a bet and he was forced. (laughs) (laughs) Worf won that one. Yeah, Worf laughing in the corner. Uh... (laughs) Good times. So they're on the bridge, all four of them now. Yes. Wesley's there because he's very interested in this new alien race. And Riker leaves Wesley in charge of watching them. He does. He's off to look for fun times. He doesn't plan his shore leaves. He just lets things happen, and normally it's interesting. Very on the nose for his character. I thought it was interesting, though. He didn't stay on the bridge. I think he's trying to trust Wesley more. Mm -hmm. He's showing he can see that Wesley is capable. He can see that Wesley is curious. He thinks, great, I'm worried about these people. Wesley's very astute. Put Wesley on the job, then I can go have fun. He's killing two birds with one stone. It was fun to see his suspicion be outweighed by his need to go look for an adventure. (laughs) Yeah, and that makes sense for his character. Yeah, He is a little impulsive and reckless, as we talked about before. I guess for him, it's just a normal amount of suspicion. It doesn't change what he's going to do on his little break. Yeah, it's just funny to see him (laughs) repeatedly over and over be suspicious of these other races. Back to Wesley. This is maybe the best they've ever handled Wesley. I agree. All he did was watch them carefully. He asked them some intelligent questions. Never was it implied that when the Binars had the computers open and were doing their thing, that Wesley had some magical understanding of what they were doing. Yeah, I like that he didn't know what they were doing. He didn't understand what was going on. He doesn't have computer coding language programming in his head. He knows how systems work. He didn't know what was going on, and that was kind of nice to see him not be super genius Wesley. We just got inquisitive Wesley, and that was nice. He's probably done computer programming, but he shouldn't be able to just fluently speak it verbally. They've established he's interested in propulsion. Just like the traveler said, Wesley is showing a natural inclination towards that. So he's more interested in materials engineering rather than computer science engineering. I agree. I could see that. But he is very fascinated by the binars, rightly. And it is nice to see Riker give him command on the bridge, even though it's supposed to be low stakes. If it was the low stakes, it wouldn't be Star Trek. So then we have a really fun sequence of scenes where Riker is walking around the ship and everyone's leaving and telling him, bye, we don't have time to talk to you. He was just looking for someone to interact with, someone to hang out with. Of course, Worf and Yar are off to play Parisi's Squares, a very physical game, probably like racquetball or tennis based on the gear they're carrying. That's how it's supposed to be. Worf is ready to take people down by any means necessary. (laughs) He has a murderous intent 
in his eyes yeah. and he's gonna do as he says whatever it takes <laughs> to win the game and then they just walk away it's a really fun like throwaway scene Yes, it is a great establisher of the diminishing number of officers on the ship. We're getting to see that the commanding personnel are leaving, and so there's just scattered families, other crew members who haven't yet gotten off the boat, if you will. That's having an effect on the upcoming plot. But can we take one more moment here on this scene? How awesome does Worf look in neon blue? Hmm. He looks good. He was pulling it off. I think so. Making it work. Riker's like, okay, fine, guys, bye. And then he goes and finds Jordy and Data. He does. They're investigating whether Data can be creative. <laughs> Jordy is teaching him how to paint. It's adorable. As Riker points out, a blind man teaching an android how to paint. Something for the history books. Indeed. He's super entertained, but he just leaves. He's like, this is really funny, but it's not my adventure. So onward. He's trying to have a sensual experience, I think. So then he finds the last person who was any hope of being entertaining, Beverly. Beverly. Who is running away to go attend a lecture and talk to this professor about all her theories. Again, we see she's a researcher. Totally, through and through. She was so inspired by him a while back that now she has all these theories she wants to talk over with him. It's very funny to see her just go on and on and on and Riker can't even get a word in. Cuts him off completely and she's quite literally dashing away. It's a white rabbit situation. I'm late, I'm late, I'm late. And then she just runs away. <laughs> He's really out of his peers at this point. Poor Riker. Oh, I loved it. I thought that was a great sequence. So he goes back to talk to the Binars again. They're pretty much done, right? Yeah, they say they're still working on a few small things, but they've basically got everything under control. They fixed the holodeck, they say. They do. They've mentioned the Harada probe. They did. They didn't say Harada, but they said probe. There's some good continuity there. We had some discussion at that time whether it was the probe that caused the holodeck to malfunction. But it seems that it may have been because they actually found evidence of that when they were investigating the computer. I still contend it could be more than that. It could also still be the computer is learning as evidence in future episodes. I think it could be both. Like there was already something weird going on and then since that probe happened they could just blame everything on the probe. They say, you know, you should check out the holodeck. He does. He makes a bar. He does. A smoky jazz lounge. 1958 New Orleans Bourbon Street Bar. That's it. He seems really amazed. We need to get into this. I was really confused by how amazed they were at the holodeck. Him and eventually Picard. What was different from last time? Last time, the holodeck was following a scripted program. We discussed previously that the holodeck was learning and that it was responding to what they were saying in the moment in real time. However, it's still a scripted program mm -hmm. and it's following a laid out storyline. In this case, Minuet is not only responding in real time, but she has more of a presence about her and she is, to use your favorite word, fully realized <laughs> as a character in that she is more present, like she's actually 100% there. Uh -huh. I'd also say that she's speaking in a very meta way. When Picard throws out some references to the program at large, she fires right back with how so. Furthermore, in the big goodbye, Riker wasn't on that mission. Perhaps he hasn't seen the new upgraded holodeck. So you mentioned Minuet. I agree with that, but he does seem amazed before she even comes up. So you think that's just he hasn't seen the upgraded holodeck yet? 
that's one plausible explanation for what otherwise is a plot hole. I thought also it might be because instead of pre-programming the whole thing, you could just ask for something. I hadn't thought of that. I could see that. They can just say, I want a bar, and there's the bar. They're not having to follow some pre-coded thing. It's really generating for them to their specifications for the very first time. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's why he's amazed. Yeah, it's not a program like a disk you install bar 1958 New Orleans. He's actually saying, eh, more people, fewer people. I need a trombone. And it just changes. That was pretty incredible. Way to show off your 90s cred there, darling. He's just lucky it didn't take two discs to install the program. (laughs) Am I right? (laughs) (laughs) I remember playing one game once that took four. To install? Yes. I had a game where you had to go back and forth between two discs depending on where you were in the game. No. (laughs) Yeah, it was horrible. Oh my goodness. (laughs) He's lonely. So he's not content to just play his bone. He calls it that, okay? (laughs) Or maybe he is. He's not content just to play his trombone. He needs a lady. He needs an audience of one. Yes. The computer gives him a blonde woman. He's very impressed. He leers. But he says, blondes don't go with jazz. I don't know what that means. I don't either. The computer gives him actually another blonde. (laughs) A dirty blonde. She was like a honey blonde. She was still blonde, okay? He's still impressed, but he says he wants something more sultry. And then we get minuets. This is really gross to watch. Him customizing a woman to leer at, it's just not pleasant. I didn't like it at all. I agree that Mm -hmm. it was unpleasant. It sort of reminded me of The Sims in the way that you can customize the characters that you're playing. I know it's an NPC that he's creating, Mm -hmm. but I've played countless video games where you can customize creatures that you're going to be playing against or playing with or NPCs. I thought that while they could have still had that established as part of the programming, I think doing three women was too much. Maybe Mm -hmm. have it right from the first girl right to Minuet. I disagree with Riker's intentions, but I understand it in the context of the programming. I see what you're saying. There's a couple of things that made it unpleasant for me. One, he had that look on his face like he had when he was watching those harpists in the episode where Troy almost gets married. He just has this really predatory, objectifying look. Also, all three of the women were ridiculously gorgeous. And so it felt different for him to keep saying not quite like that than if it had first given him like a 50-year-old male sailor and Riker was like, no, no, no. I meant a woman, you know, that I can dance with or something like that. That would be different. Okay. He was so petty and objectifying to be so specific when there was nothing wrong with the other women. I agree. Again, I don't agree with his intentions. I don't Mm -hmm. agree with the way he was acting Mm -hmm. on any level. Okay. I'm just saying as an artifact of the holodeck, I'm okay with customization. I did agree that the blocking of the shot, the way when they finally get to Minuet, they have this very slow up pan showing off her legs and body and the rest of it. Ugh, that didn't work for me. I thought that was cheesy. thought it was gratuitous, like I've said. It was the wrong tone. You can establish that she's sexy through what she says. She has a great wit to her. It was very funny, very charming and present type of person that you could really have a good time with in a bar. But 
through the camera work objectifying. I can understand as a character flaw having Riker be objectifying. That is part mm-hmm. of his personality. He's a typical male in that sense. He sees women as a game and as something to conquer, just like he sees the rest of his career and his life. I get that. That being said, the camera did not need to enhance that. And it could have been more of a character study from having a more wide shot, seeing his reaction, seeing the girl. That's enough. He could have said what he wanted from the beginning. If he wants a brunette, fine. He should have said, like, I want a brunette woman in a nice dress. He also takes the time to leer at each one before being like, nah. If it had been right away, like, no reaction really, him just being like, oh, yeah, no, no, not a blonde, a brunette. That would have been different, but that's not how he reacted. Anyway, this is Holodeck 4. So, rooms. Hey, Hey. I was right. I still think they need a sign-up sheet. A real official one with a pen attached. There you go. <laughs> Riker plays the trombone. We actually found out that Jonathan Frakes actually does play the trombone, and it was awesome to see him actually play it. His lip embouchure was great. It looked like he was actually playing the instrument because he actually knows what he's doing, and that's so nice to see. So often in film, we see these actors who don't actually play the instruments are trying to pass off that they're playing, and it just looks horrible from a musician's perspective like myself. It's nice to see someone handle an instrument properly. Little funny moment, the piano player tells him not to quit his day job. (laughs) So the computer is insulting his musical ability. He's devastated by the criticism from the computer. Not really, but he does stop after that. He dances with Minuet. It's confirmed that he's super serious about his job over everything. We kind of knew that because of his interaction with Troy, especially. In the past, not wanting to marry her because he wants to be a ship's captain and that's more important than having a family. We can tell that his work is important. So they're having the slow dance. She's making him feel good and feel understood. And they kiss. I was thinking at this point, he's thinking probably he can save this program and whenever he needs some relationship-y time, he can just use Minuet. I think so, too. Yeah, she's not as demanding as a real woman. Doesn't make him choose to marry her or become a ship captain, for example. She still feels real enough to satisfy his emotional needs. I think he was really thinking about having a serious relationship or long-term affair with the computer program. Minuet's accent. It was weird. It was a little all over the place. I'm not exactly sure what she was going for. The actress, I mean. Is she trying to do 50s? Trying to do like a typical New Orleans style? I don't know what accent that was. It was very confusing. It was a flaw because we weren't sure if it was supposed to be telling us something or if it was just incidental that she had an interesting accent. It didn't feel right in the context. I forgot to mention that before the Binars leave Riker with his... His date. They're clearly doing something else at the computer that they shouldn't be doing. They did a lot of nervous, furtive looks in his direction. They do a lot of nervous, furtive looks throughout the episode, which are successfully furtive (laughs) because people don't really notice they're doing it. Yes. (laughs) It's just us. Picard shows up right in the middle of Riker's action. Riker is making a move. He is heading upstairs, potentially. Yeah, they have rooms above the bar, right? Riker does seem surprised and embarrassed. He does. But Picard is totally cool about it. He's really impressed with the bar. He's like, this is the kind of thing I would put on the holodeck. And he's going to leave, but Minuet and Riker both want him to stay. They talk about how Minuet's learning, like we mentioned. 
We cut to Wesley's monitoring everything, and he notices a problem in engineering. He doesn't know what it is or how to fix it. Oh my goodness. He calls up Data and tells him, I saw something, I don't know what it is, and I don't know how to fix it. I don't know what's going on, and I'm so scared and confused. I'm not sure he went that far. Oh, that's what I took from it. Why can't he fix it from the bridge? This isn't the Wesley we know and love. Very biting as that is. There's a button on the bridge that he can press. I know it. (laughs) I know it. I believe in you, Wesley. Hit that button. (laughs) Okay, calm down. No. (laughs) (laughs) As much as we love to see an epic button mashing by Wesley, I think that it was great to see him not know something. Yeah, it was great. And it was realistic. Yeah. Like I said before, the way they use him in this episode is perfect. That's the way it should be. He noticed something. We've even mentioned that as a solution before. It's fine if he notices it and brings it to people's attention because he has time to sit around looking. Exactly. So they run down to engineering. I wrote down the magnetic containment field for the antimatter is deteriorating. As this little plot goes on, They kind of throw around the terms magnetic containment field, containment field, and magnetic field pretty interchangeably. So we're not sure which is which. We're not sure if it's one shield, if it's two shields, or maybe more than that. The biggest issue is that I have a cat who snores in his sleep quite loudly and interrupts my podcasting. The biggest issue with all of this is the fact that there's a 15 second countdown by a male engineering voice but then it goes on to show an extensive evacuation sequence that would definitely take longer than 15 seconds i thought the whole thing was going to explode right then in 15 seconds did data do something did jordan do something no i think it is more than one level of containment you're right on that data snaps into action he initiates the red alert he calls for abandoned ship then sends the ship on its way alone to explode as far as possible from any inhabited areas. A lot of humans would have hesitated to think, oh my gosh, we're going to let this ship blow up. He knows there's no other choice. The only other person we've seen act as fast as this is Picard. Yes. This just provides more support for my argument that Data should be number one. That's my ongoing thesis in Star Trek. (laughs) Data for number one, Riker for number two. Star Trek, the next generation, a data's tale. Yeah. Data takes command. Oh, yeah. I would have watched that spinoff all day. (laughs) I thought it was really interesting that they have transporters on each deck. Makes sense, though. It does. So the one we see must be the one for the bridge. I think so. Yeah, that makes sense because there's so few spots on each transporter. Data and Geordi have no idea that Picard and Riker are on the holodeck. Once again, the computer does not tell them. And then later, when Riker asks the computer, basically, why do they think the ship was clear? The computer just says, unknown. The computer doesn't know what the binars did to it, apparently. It's not that self-aware. Yeah, but it doesn't have any information on it, is what I mean. Yeah, no. They all leave. They're all on the base. Cool shot of the ship pulling away, supposedly empty. And then we find out, oh, actually, the containment unit's fine. They have no way to get to the ship at this point. Data has a moment where he's worried and guilty that he left his post on the bridge. He says he doesn't really need to leave. He could just stay there 24 hours a day. 
he's realizing that he was embracing maybe his humanity too much and he could be more machine-like by staying always on the bridge never sleeping keeping a closer eye on things but that he tries to be more human by taking breaks exploring things like painting in his mind that put everyone in jeopardy of course we know that even if he was there it's still possible the binars could even circumvent him watching they were willing to take everyone out picard going to the holodeck was just a happy accident they would have had to do something else to get rid of him. I thought it was a very human moment for Data, though. That was a very sweet moment for him, mm-hmm. showing that he really does care, almost on an emotional level, almost, about the well-being of his crew. He takes that really seriously. He's decided he cares about them, and that's what it really takes. I wonder if that plays into the Asimov do-no-harm-to-humans thing. Interestingly, it's Yar who tells him not to think that way. I don't think that's significant. She was just nearby, and Troy wasn't there. I felt like a very Troy line to me. They do realize by now that Riker and Picard are on the ship still. Data really wants to try to get back on any way possible, but that's when they figure out that they can't get to the transporters in time, and it's moving away. And they don't have any ships that are in good repair to catch up. Not that they could catch up anyway. (laughs) The Enterprise is the flagship. I mean, it's the best of the best. They're not going to be able to do anything on a lesser class starship, probably. They have this really cool shot of all the empty hallways on the Enterprise with the red alert flashing, but it's all silence. It's like a handheld camera, right? I think so. It feels really different from their normal cinematography on the show. It was cool. It's like we're creeping around the Enterprise. It's a little bit scary and empty. So then they go back to New Orleans, 1958. Riker and Minuets are having this really intimate conversation. He's told her some story where he sounds like a wonderful person, again about him helping others. And she's flattering him and making him feel amazing. And Picard is just sitting back, analyzing the situation, and making occasional remarks about what an amazing program Minuet is. Such a great contrast of their characters. Riker is engaging in the moment with what's right in front of him. Picard is thinking on a much more meta level. Picard really admires the computer program, but doesn't get sucked in by what's going on. He remembers it's an illusion, as impressed as he is. So, right, as you said, he's appreciating it on a meta level. Riker, this may be some commentary on his need for close personal relationships and some love. He doesn't care that it's a computer program. He needs this kind of validation. And they talk about how she's picking up subtle signs and giving people exactly what they want, just like computer programs can do. Picard thinks the holodeck has reached some new level with the Binar's help. And And he's right. He's right, but that doesn't seem to stick. Yes. That's just a patch (laughs) on the program to keep Riker occupied. They realize something's wrong when Picard keeps trying to leave and Minuet doesn't want him to go. And they realize the ship's empty. They see the red alert flashing in the corridors. Picard and Riker go over to the console and they ask, why weren't we notified about the situation? Computer says unknown because it was the binars who coded over it and Mm -hmm. made it do what they want. That's when Picard and Riker rush off to the weapons room to get ready for a fight. The computer, when they talked to it at the console, seemed a lot more chatty and human than normal. I thought so too. It was a definite difference. Also. There was the man's voice doing the countdown in the engineering room, like Mm -hmm. you mentioned. And I thought, oh man, they changed the whole voice to the computer when they did their update. But then at this console, it's the normal female voice again. When they go back to engineering, it's the male voice again. 
in the engineering department, they have a male computer. They do. It's different than the rest of the ship. Interesting. So weird. They do find out from the computer that they're heading towards Binus, the Binar's planets. They go right to the weapons room. First time we've seen that on the show. Yeah. Then they go to engineering to initiate a self-destruct sequence. Picard's ready to blow it up. He said, this can't fall in anyone else's hands. He's just as ruthless towards the ship as Data, even though they both love the ship so much. It was nice to see that parallel between them. Taking action, taking command. And they're even doing it in the same place on the ship, in engineering. I like that it took the approval of both the first officer and the captain to set the self-destruct and turn it off. Yes, that's really nice to know that it takes that much because we've talked about how much power the captain has and then when they're in those situations where he's taken over by some force, what if he tried to blow up the ship? It's really important that someone else has to agree. I think that's awesome. There's a nice parallel between the two of them working together the same way the binars are working together in pairs. You're right, and a little bit farther on, they find out they actually have to work together to get the computer file they need to save the binars. That's right. Picard and Riker see a bunch of data is going into the ship's computer. They're expecting a big fight, so they both beam into the bridge to distract the enemy, potentially. But the binars are passed out and helpless. They say they need help. Their main computer's off. We find out because a supernova sent a big shockwave. They knew it would shut down their computer, so they were trying to prepare for that by dumping everything into the Enterprise's computer as backup. But it ended up happening earlier than they expected, so they weren't shut down. They don't actually know if they'll be able to save the planet, but they are. They are able to save the planet. It's Star Trek. Picard and Riker figure out the password because it's the Binar's names, also the title of the episode. We should mention now that the title of the episode, 11001001, can be translated into decimals as 401, which humorously is an error code. I should mention they found out most of this from Minuet, who was really just waiting for them to ask. (laughs) Yes, she was. (laughs) It was one of those things, like, why didn't you just ask? I could have told you everything from the beginning. The Binars, all they needed was help, but they didn't ask, and that made it harder. This, again, supports what you said earlier, how they have been simplified in their progress. They are not thinking on a bigger scale. They're really thinking in terms of black and white. If they had thought to ask, they were worried that they just would say no. It's a pretty non-threatening ending, not very dramatic in the end. Picard takes the helm. I was a little bit worried, but it's mostly automated. Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> he takes them back to base. They hand the binars over to the proper authorities, and everything is saved. Wrapped up in a nice, neat little bow. But, da, da, da. <laughs> <laughs> Riker goes back to the holodeck, expects to see Minuet. This brunette woman turns around, and it's not her. That was a little creepy. Actually, it was a little creepy. She was very similar. From the back, identical. But it wasn't the same person. And he sadly comes back to tell Picard that Minuet is gone. And we're left wondering where that leaves the holodeck, how much more advanced did the Binars make it, and what else can it do to try to kill them in the future? (laughs) Indeed. Minuet reminds me a little bit of Mal from Inception. Ooh. Probably for a number of reasons, actually. Now that I'm saying it, they even look similar. What struck me was, okay, the holodeck is always trying to kill them, right? 
and you wonder what Minuet's motivations are? When we watched Inception, I was always worried that she was just going to turn on him. Did you get the same feeling? I did. She had a malicious intent to her. Even when you're not sure what's going to happen, she had this unsettling intent, malicious intent, like you said. And that reminds me of a character like Minuet on the holodeck. You think they're fine, but you don't really know what's going on. There's more levels to it. Good one. Thank you. He could have come back. She could have turned around, had a different face, and just been holding a knife and smiling maniacally or something. That would have totally been holodeck stuff. That would have been cliffhanger for sure. And nightmare-inducing. I enjoyed this episode. This was a solid Star Trek entry, as you would say. One thing I liked about this is the plot itself was really kind of predictable on the big notes of the plot. They go in for maintenance, someone wants their ship or wants to sabotage the ship, it gets stolen, they get it back. Roll credits. It's not that complicated. The way they went about telling the story, though, was a lot more nuanced than that. The way the Binars thought and the way they tried to take over the ship with some weird manipulations that were so obvious in some ways that they were manipulating that the Enterprise crew didn't even notice that that's what it was. With someone like the Ferengi, if they had been like, oh, Riker, go try out the holodeck. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I've thought before that you sound a little bit like a Ferengi. <laughs> this takes the cake. <laughs> he would have been like, no, ew, gross, Ferengi, get it off me. But the Binars just seems so machine-like and incapable of acting that way that everyone just falls right into their traps. That just made it more interesting. Having Riker and Picard tied up on the holodeck while the ship's getting stolen is cool. I liked it. Good storyline. Some interesting stuff with Riker. What's going on with him? He seems emotionally damaged, which is a problem. And some great data. Oh, data of the day. Our data of the day comes when Data is painting with Geordi. The second time we see them, right before they're interrupted by Wesley and all the emergencies. I am awaiting inspiration. Overall, really good episode. Not the most original, but interesting and fun to watch. I would give it 7.5 out of 10 lady-sized glasses of wine. I thought that this was a good Star Trek entry as well. Like you said, it was predictable at the big points. I also like the way that they were original about the unfolding of the narrative. I love the opening sequence. I love the sequence where they were crawling through the abandoned ship. I like the Binars as a species. It was great to see them getting some rest and some shore leave on the space station. I thought it was great to see Data painting, a passion that I also share. I had a really good time with this one. I'm going to give this episode also 7.5 out of 10 bones. This has been Season 1, Episode 15, 11001001. Thank you so much for listening. This is the next, next generation podcast. Follow us on Twitter. Add us at the next, next gen.